Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. This is episode eight, Switch and Bait. It's September 1991, two years after the Pelly family was murdered. A man in an orange jumpsuit at a federal prison in Atlanta is furiously scribbling words onto a piece of paper. His name is James Chapman, and he's a jailhouse snitch. James claims he knows who killed Bob, Don, Janelle, and Jolene Pelly. He's had a lengthy criminal history, and throughout the 1980s and 90s, he's been in and out of prison. In a letter he penned to St. Joseph County investigators in 1991, James wrote that one of his former cellmates confessed to the Lakeville murders. According to handwritten letters I have copies of, James's story goes like this. In early 1988, James got a new cellmate who went by the name Dave. Just Dave. No last name. Dave told James that he was in prison for stealing a box truck filled with furniture and transporting it over state lines. Before being arrested, Dave, his wife, and their kids were transients in South Bend, Indiana, and ran out of money. They were told to visit a local pastor. When they did, the Reverend gave the family a $100 check. But the money quickly dried up, and Dave and his wife got into a fight. He hit her, and she ran back to the pastor for help. The pastor got the police involved, and eventually Dave was busted with the truck full of stolen goods. Dave vowed to James that when he was released, he would, quote, get back at the pastor and blow him off the face of the earth, end quote. Fast forward to a year later, summer 1989. According to James, Dave had made parole at the beginning of the year, and James himself was out of prison, too. The two men met up near an interstate in Ohio and shared dinner and a motel room. That's when James says Dave confessed to murdering a family of four in Indiana in April. James said Dave explained how he used a 12-gauge shotgun to shoot all four victims in the head, including two young girls he chased into a downstairs game room. When their mother came down screaming, Dave said he'd shot her too. Dave also told James that he'd shot a man upstairs and stepped over his body and shot him a second time when he tried to get up. Dave told James he'd stolen a 35-millimeter camera, a bag of coins, and a wristwatch from the family's house. So this scenario sounds a lot like the Pelly murders, right? Maybe, but I'm always wary of jailhouse confessions. 
James wrote several more letters to Indiana police in the early 1990s about this Dave friend of his being the family's killer. But the problem was, his information was not credible. For example, James doesn't even know the full name of his old cellmate, Dave. Then there's the obvious details that don't fit with the crime scene. Like when James states Dave told him he used a 12-gauge shotgun in the murders. Well, we know from the autopsies and evidence inside the Pelly Parsonage that a 20-gauge was used. One thing I noticed from news media reports published in the early days of the Pelly murder investigation was that news outlets often incorrectly reported that a 12-gauge was used in the crime. So if it's a scenario where James is making up his story, that's why he says a 12-gauge was used, not a 20-gauge. Because he's basing his details on info that's been misreported in the news. There's also times in James's letters that he says Dave described the little girls as wearing long white nightgowns when he killed them. That too is just not possible. I've seen the crime scene photos of the dead Pelly girls. They were in tank tops and shorts, not nightgowns. There's also no way Dave stole a 35 millimeter camera because that was collected as evidence from the parsonage. Needless to say, St. Joseph County detectives didn't give James Chapman much credit. His information wasn't considered legit, but they couldn't write him off entirely, so they took what he said, filed his letters away, and kept moving along. In 1991, Detective John Bowditch was still convinced that Jeff Pelly was the person who killed Bob, Don, Janelle, and Jolene. In the two years since the slayings, he'd had some odd interactions with Jeff in Lakeville. I probably interviewed Jeff 20, 25 times. If I was outside of my house, which is just outside of Lakeville, Jeff was driving by because he ended up moving to an apartment in Lakeville. He stopped by my house. Hey, John, how you doing? Good, Jeff, how are you? Hey, I got a job. I'm working at this place. I'm selling knives, or I'm thinking about doing this vacuum cleaner thing. What do you think about that? You know, and people say, and I tell people this, you know, if you knew I was a lead investigator on a case where your mother your stepmother, your father, and your two stepsisters all got killed, would there be one question you would ever ask me, even if you hated your stepmother and your stepsisters? Did you ever find out who killed my dad? Never. He never asked that. I'd go see him at his apartment. And that was kind of freaky because some of the furniture he had in there was the furniture was in the basement of that house. Sometime in late 1990, Jeff moved from Indiana back to Cape Coral, Florida. He was about to turn 20 years old and wanted to make a fresh start. He took a job working in a credit bureau business in Fort Myers, which was owned by a longtime family friend who attended First Church of the Nazarene when Jeff was growing up. The leader of that family was a prominent Fort Myers businessman named Philip Hawley. Phil had five sons, Pierre, Danny, Paul, David, and Martin, all roughly close to Jeff's age. After moving to Indiana, Jeff stayed close friends with the Hollies, especially Martin, who was a classmate of his from Cape Coral High School. In May 1989, Martin was actually interviewed by the Fort Myers News Press, reacting to the murders of the Pelly family. He was 16 when he spoke to the reporter and said, quote, It doesn't seem realistic. Their family life hasn't gone very well, end quote. According to the report, Martin told the newspaper that he was in Chicago the weekend the Pellies were killed and was heartbroken for his friend, Jeff. 
In the wake of the crimes and Jeff returning to Fort Myers, the Hawley family didn't just give Jeff a job, they took him under their wing. Jeff thrived working for Phil's business, chasing payments for delinquent accounts and collecting commissions. He'd basically become part of the Hawley family and even married one of Phil's nieces, a woman named Kim. Things were looking up until all of a sudden they weren't. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. Just a better way to watch TV. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning everyone in the house can have their own saved shows and up to three simultaneous streams. Never fight over who gets to pick what to watch. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like ID, Lifetime, and MTV. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash counterclock. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash counterclock to binge all your favorite murder mysteries now. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. In the early 1990s, Jeff Pelly graduated from former juvenile delinquent petty thief to much more serious crimes. According to court affidavits and hospital records, Jeff was being investigated for suspicion of committing medical insurance fraud. It stemmed from an elaborate scheme to try and get early access to his inheritance from Bob and Don's estate. In 1991, Ed Hayes, who was Don's father and the executor of Bob and Don's assets, noticed Jeff was up to something. At the time, Ed was responsible for allocating and investing life insurance money for Jeff, Jackie, and Jessica. The girls were left with roughly $65,000 each, and Jeff was supposed to get $48,000. Some of his money had already been used to pay for his one year of college. None of the children were allowed to access any of the funds until they turned 23. According to Ed, not long after moving to Florida, Jeff repeatedly asked for funds from his trust fund, but Ed continually told him no. Fast forward to July 1991, and Ed gets a somber phone call from Jeff. Jeff told Ed that he had skin cancer, the same diagnosis as his biological mother, Joy, and he had surgery to remove it. Jeff said the doctors were able to remove the growth, but he was claiming he was left with a $20,000 hospital bill he couldn't pay. Wary that Jeff was trying to use the story as a means to access his trust fund early, Ed made Jeff send him the bill from the surgeons and hospital to verify his story. 
Jeff forwarded Ed the bill, and it seemed legit. When Ed called the phone number on the bill listed for the hospital's billing department, a woman on the other end who claimed to work for the facility wasn't very helpful. She seemed like she had no idea what she was doing and couldn't answer any of Ed's questions. She also wouldn't transfer him to her supervisor. With no luck there, Ed tried to verify the doctors who were listed on the bill, but he found out they weren't even listed on the hospital's staff. At that point, Ed felt sure Jeff was trying to pull a fast one. He just couldn't figure out how he could have forged the former letterhead and phone number and make the bill look so legit. Ed took his concerns to Florida authorities, and for a few years, federal agents worked the case, trying to expose Jeff for medical fraud. By 1994, the FBI and John Bowditch and Mark Center from Indiana were working together. They were trying to see if the pressure of facing federal indictment would push Jeff over the edge. John and Mark wanted Jeff to finally crack and confess to murdering his family. Here's John and Mark to explain how that all went down. We go to Florida and we hooked up with the FBI and the deal, what we were going to do was because they had a arrest warrant for Jeff for fraud. So we go there, set it up for like 6 o'clock in the morning. We're going to go to the house, and I'm going to knock on the door. I knock on the door. Jeff opens the door and goes, Hey, John, how you doing? I said, Good, Jeff. I said, You're going to have to come with me. He said, Oh, okay. I put the handcuffs on him. I don't tell him why I'm even there. You know? I put the handcuffs on. We're walking to the car. He goes, hey, John, can I ask you a question? I go, yeah, what? He said, are we going back to Indiana today or tomorrow? I go, I don't know yet, Jeff. we got to figure it out, you know? So we took him to um, the FBI office, and um, Mark and I sitting in there with him. He kicked Mark out. And I knew that this was going to be our last shot. If we don't get him in Florida, we're done. I probably talked to him for an hour and a half, two hours or whatever, and he would never give it up. And I said, well, there's going to be some other people come in and talk to you, Jeff. So, and they came in and read the warrant and arrested him. Jeff's scheme had officially unraveled. He'd been exposed for forging the medical bill and enlisting the help of his mother-in-law. According to documents, Jeff had set up a phone line in his house, and she would answer it, pretending to be the hospital's billing department when Ed Hayes would call. In the end, the hospital declined to press charges because Jeff's mother-in-law worked for them and the company just wanted to move on, keep it hush, I guess. Ed, on the other hand, wanted Jeff to be punished for his deception. Ultimately, in July of 1994, Jeff pleaded guilty to a lesser count of wire fraud and was sentenced to probation. Jackie Pelly in no way condones her brother's deceit, but she understands where he was coming from. I'm not going to justify what he did because it was wrong, but I can tell you... One, he wasn't trying to steal my money. He wasn't trying to steal Jessica's money. He was trying to gain access to his money that was in the trust fund. And I know from my own firsthand experience, getting money as per the will was not easy. Again, what he did wasn't okay, but it wasn't, the executors were not playing by the rules either. So it made for a tough situation. I'll just say, Jackie is a firm supporter of her brother. She thinks the tactic John and Mark used to try and get him to confess to the 89 murders was wrong and borderline illegal. I find that very interesting that they would go all the way to Florida 
to be the ones to knock on his door for something that happened in Florida out of their jurisdiction. I'm not one to judge either way. John and Mark did what they did, and still it led nowhere in nailing Jeff for the murders. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a moot point. What I do know for a fact is that after pleading guilty in 1994, Jeff's life took a turn for the better. He started working with computers and eventually landed a lucrative job traveling internationally as a consultant for IBM. He and Kim had a son together and moved from Fort Myers to Dade City, Florida, where they bought a half a million dollar home. According to court records, in 1997, things got rocky in their marriage and they filed for divorce, only to reconcile later. Their split union turned reunion, ushered them into the early 2000s with optimism. The same could not be said for John Bowditch and Mark Center, though. The Indiana detectives were sure Jeff was their murderer, but they just couldn't prove it. In the year 2000, St. Joseph County went through a series of political changes, most notably the election of a county prosecutor named Chris Toth. John and Mark used this change of guard to convince Chris to pursue charges in the Pelly murders, and it worked. Chris ran his campaign on the promise that he would finally bring to justice whoever was responsible for murdering the Pelly family. When Chris won his seat, he created a new investigative division within the county prosecutor's office dedicated to solving cold cases. The Pelly murders were on the top of the list, and a brand new investigator who was eager to make a name for himself picked it up and ran all the way with it. There's intense, intense scrutiny on the case. It's high profile. Uh, it was a national story, even before they had social media. And there's a lot of pressure on investigators and prosecutors and everyone to you know, get to the bottom of it. That's next on CounterClock. Listen to episode nine, Years to Wait, right now. Do you know someone struggling to figure out their mental health benefits? The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office is here to help. Find us at insurance.ohio.gov slash G-E-T-M-H-I-A or call us at 855-438-6442. Don't wait. The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office can help you figure out what mental health insurance benefits may be in their plan. Call us today at 855-438-6442. If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. ba da ba ba Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512.24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. 